The Unshackled Waves, episode 113. Broadcasting from Melbourne, Australia, this is The Unshackled Waves with Tim Wills. Brought to you by theunshackled.net. Hello everyone, great to have your company. I hope you had a good Christmas and since it is our final show for 2017, I thought it would be appropriate to have a urine review show. After the triumphs of Brexit and Trump in 2016, the political establishment made a comeback and to a large degree they were successful. We will look at the political developments of 2017 in Europe, the United States and here in Australia. To do this, we welcome back to the show Unshackled contributor Jacob Watts. This is the Unshackled Waves Review Show. Jacob, welcome back to the show. Yeah, Tim, it's, it, it is good to be back after a, a long wait. I was in the Ecuadorian embassy with uh, Julian Assange, you know, a fellow dissident. So that's where I've been. Uh, so it wasn't because we, you know, had a falling out and uh, it's just that you've been busy. No, 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 I have been busy. Um, been working six, uh, six days a week at the moment, so... I uh, haven't had time to do the show, but uh, I've been given a Christmas break, so I'm on that now, and it's it's a perfect time to do a recap of 2017. Uh, well, there's certainly a lot the, that happened in the world. Uh, why don't we start with uh, Europe, and uh, that continent saw a, a number of uh, important elections uh, where most of us were hoping that the nationalist candidates would do well, the first uh, cab off the rank was uh, the Netherlands, uh, where uh, we were hoping that uh, Gert Wilders, who is leader of Party for Freedom, uh, his party would uh, improve their, their standing in the parliament. Uh, they, they were currently out of coalition government under the, the current prime minister, Mark Rutte. They had a net gain of, of five seats. Uh, they still uh, weren't included in the, uh, the next government. Um, so it wasn't the, the big result that we were hoping for. And uh, Gert Wilders, he had really been at the forefront for uh, nearly this entire century, warning about the dangers of uh, Islamic uh, immigration. Uh, but he has had some influence in uh, getting rid of uh, multiculturalism as a policy of the Netherlands, but there's still a lot that needs to be done in that country. And during that uh, campaign, there was still a lot of uh, demonization of him uh, as an ex extremist, as a, a doomsday sayer. Well, this is a load of baloney. Simply, people like Gert Wilders, Nigel Farage, uh, for instance, they have a view of the world that isn't one of utopian multiculturalism, but is one of true egalitarianism, which is meritocracy, which if you have the merits, you have the traits, the education, the talents to come into a country, then you are more than welcome to. If you're not a criminal, you're more than welcome to come into a country. If you're not an Islamic extremist, you're more than welcome to come into the country. These are just basic standards that should have always been uh, in the Netherlands, for instance, and uh, he, he's not some far-right extremist, as they paint him out to be, but he's a man who cares about the sovereignty of his country's borders. And I, I am patently sick of the demonisation of the mainstream left-wing media. To call anyone like Gert Wilders or Nigel Farage or Marine Le Pen, for that matter, 
anyone who cares about their country's sovereignty, national security, calling them some kind of Nazi. Because truth be told, the the amount of, of shit they have uh, that's been you know incurred upon them with with millions of migrants, an exorbitant welfare state, and the EU socialism, you know, if having a few kind of lone uh, lone pioneers like uh, Gert Wilders can never be a bad thing, in my opinion. Well, let's move on to France, and obviously that was one of the big disappointments of the year. Uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, leader of the National Front, she made it to the second round of the pre presidential election. However, she lost uh, two, two to one to uh, the globalist uh, preferred candidate, Emmanuel Macron. Now, he uh, sold himself as an anti-establishment uh, person because he said, I'm not left or right. But uh, he he was for pretty much business as usual. EU integration, you know, didn't want to address the the immigration uh, question at all. So it was a it was a really big disappointment in France that you know they elected somebody who is going to make their problems worse. And, and not surprisingly, uh, in the second half of the year, the gloss has quickly worn off Macron. Well, I might get myself into a little bit of trouble here for what I'm going to embark upon. But what what I think is probably this is the case. Marine, uh, sorry. Uh, Emmanuel uh, Macron, sorry, is secretly um, Angela Merkel's love child, and you know this has been kept quiet for a number of years. And now Macron's been smuggled back into France to basically do anything that uh, Mummy Angela wants uh, him to do. And yeah, personally, he is just the, the. My opinion is he's the biggest puppet. Of, of Germany that exists. He's a globalist, he's a Goldman Sachs banker. You know, he, he's not for France. He's, he, he is basically one of the Goldman Sachs establishment types. We have one in Malcolm Turnbull here. America had one in Barack Hussein Obama. And now France has got a Goldman Sachs globalist sellout in Emmanuel Macron. Business as usual, correct. National sovereignty, not a priority. The Islamification of France, um, combating it, not a priority. Business as usual, integration is a priority. So France is going down the gurgler, sadly. 10% of the country is Muslim. So therefore, there's, there's obviously there's a lot more friction than there is in a place like Britain that has a population that is 5% Muslim. So a matter of integrating these people, you know, having a merit-based immigration system, having strong national security, and and having well national sovereignty not being dictated to by Brussels. It, it seems that um, that France said no to being France, and it said yes uh, to being controlled by a bunch of faceless bureaucrats in Brussels when they uh, when they essentially elected Emmanuel Macron. And spare a thought for the, the people of the UK. They experienced three major terrorist attacks this year. There was also one uh, revenge uh, terror attack. And they also had a, a snap election where uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May, she thought she could uh, win a landslide election. It turned out, uh, given her uninspiring uh, campaign, that it was a hung parliament. And she made the unelectable... Uh, 
we were told unelectable Jeremy Corbyn, uh, he he actually gained seats, and now according to the polls, he's actually in the box seats to be the next prime minister of the the UK at the next next election, whenever that is. If Jeremy Corbyn uh, wins the next general election, uh, me myself, being a dual national, I will burn my passport because Britain will turn into a socialist hellhole uh, that the likes of Karl Marx and Fidel Castro, you know, would have got rather excited about. You know, he wants to nationalise everything. Well, I, I just read a long and lengthy biography on Ronald Reagan, and he depicted a conversation between uh, the Labor, current Labor le leader at the time, and Winston Churchill. They were both sitting, standing next to each other in the in the urinal, and uh, the, the you know the, the the they had a conversation, and and the guy looks over at Winston, and he and and Winston he gets a bit nervous, and he says, and the Labor guy says, why are you nervous? Because everything that you see that is large and that works well, you want to nationalise, and that's that's the same thing here with Jeremy Corbyn. Anything that the private enterprise has done brilliantly, beautifully in, uh, the innovation that they've done. He just wants to basically steal it, he wants to loot it, and he wants to give it to the non-productive. And this is what Milton Friedman said, that the problem with this kind of stuff is that we in society at the moment are encouraging the non-productive and, you know, um, disincentivizing the productive. And that's essentially what Corbyn wants to do. Corbyn would throw Britain back into the dark ages if he was to become Prime Minister. He is simply, you know, a socialist hack. Uh, you know, he has supported um, he has supported the IRA, who have basically murdered hundreds of Britons or thousands of Britons in cold blood. He has supported Hezbollah, namely, and he was against Britain, uh, you know, overthrowing the thug-like socialist dictator uh, who's, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein. So he's a traitor to the nation. You know, he wants to basically privatise so he can loot it for his Labour cronies, the, the economy. And he would be the worst thing to ever happen to Britain, you know, since uh, Hitler and World War Two. And of course, in Germany, uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel got quite the scare at their federal elections with the uh, Nationalist Party, the Alternative for Germany, or the AFD. They gained 12.6% of the uh, party vote, which, me, uh, which made them the third biggest party in the uh, German Bundestag. And uh, Angela Merkel, she thought that she could team up with the other establishment parties to uh, have a fourth term as German Chancellor, but the negotiations, they, they aren't going well. And certainly her grip on power, which she's been Chancellor for 12 years now, has uh, certainly weakened. And it's mainly due to the uh, migration crisis that she's uh, beset the nation with. I, I think personally that there'll be another round of general elections. Um, and that Merkel will probably hang on to power still. But there'll probably be another round of general elections called, and this will be probably a vast period of instability for Germany, as I gather. 
And of course, uh, nationalists saw their biggest gains in the uh, Austrian elections, where we saw uh, their youngest ever chancellor elected, uh, Sebastian Kurz, when the two uh, right-wing uh, right parties, the Austrian People's Party and the Freedom Party, were able to form a, a coalition. Now, despite his youth, uh, Kurz had actually been uh, foreign minister of Austria for three years, where he'd fought the, the influence of uh, foreign money uh, coming in from Islamic countries uh, to spread uh, radical Islamic ideology, and he'd uh, taken a stand against uh, the EU's uh, migration policy. And of course, Austria is you know, in the heart of uh, Western Europe, so that was a significant gain for, for the nationalist uh, groups in Europe. It was, and I, I was having... Uh, a conversation after the critic with a friend of mine, and we were basically. I, I know that Austria is in the West, but we were basically saying that the 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 old East is the new West, and I think that anything kind of you know east of Germany has some kind of hope still. Uh, Austria, uh, it was great to see them, uh, you know, elect you know a right wing government. Uh, simply, Europe is a mess. I haven't been keeping up with Europe as much as you have. I've been following America and Australia more closely. Um, Europe's kind of flown under my radar a little bit, but but nonetheless, Austria uh, electing a young uh, visionary uh, is a good thing uh, in, in this sense because he has a proven track record of performing as foreign minister. He is not a reality TV star who we don't know, you know, what we're going to get from him and uh, that in Donald Trump, but Donald Trump has performed. This this guy has a proven track record, which is good. Europe does have some hope. Uh, they do have some people uh, who are willing to actually fight for uh, Western civilization, for all the good things of Bach, Mozart, uh, you know, the, the culture, uh, the food, the fine cuisine. All of this has um, been, you know, put on a back seat for, uh, how would I say, a, a doctrine, a religion of multiculturalism that, that has simply ruined Europe. And to have, you know, a few people in here who are, who are nationalists and who are not globalists is, is, is a marvellous thing, is a great thing. And, and, and I think we're seeing some hope. We've seen some hope out of Europe this year. We've, we've seen a great deal of disappointment. But the year prior, we saw Brexit. Uh, we've seen Gert Wilders, uh, the um, the alternative uh, party for Deutschland, all gaining some a vast amount of ground. And simply, this shows us that there is hope uh, to combating the faceless bureaucrats in Brussels. You're certainly right about uh, Eastern Europe. They've turned into Western civilization's greatest defenders. I mean, the Hungarian Prime Minister, uh, Viktor Orban, he built a, a border wall to, to keep out the migrants flooding into Europe, and uh, he said he wanted to make the EU pay for it, and Poland is seeing a resurgent uh, nationalist movement. And uh, unlike uh, governments in Western Europe, they have uh, a government in Poland which actually listens to the people and, you know, implements, you know, uh, what, what they desire, which is, you know, pleasing that there's, you know, quite a, a number of countries in uh, Europe who are, you know, willing to, you know, stand up to what is the ultimate globalist body, which is the European Union. Well, yes, um, the European Union, the uh, UN, 
the IMF, these are all the globalist bodies that simply are anti-people. You know, they're, they're basically the most pro-establishment bodies that exist. Now, one thing that we've seen is the UN having the right to shoot people as well. So having a global uh, armed army, which is scary. But to, to go on to that point of Eastern Europe, I, I see Eastern Europe as what the Byzantine Empire was to the Roman Empire. It's just kind of that there's, there's, there's a life support machine that is plugged into nice kind of coal heartlands of Eastern Europe. And it's it's keeping the thing alive. But I think that this is a Byzantine Empire to the Roman Empire. It is just, it, it will be Western civilization for the next few hundred years. And then ultimately, if we don't fight, Western civilization will be overruled by socialist uh, world governmental bodies like the UN and the EU, which is very scary. In the United States, obviously, we saw uh, President Donald Trump uh, inaugurated and we got to see uh, Trump uh, implement his agenda, which was easy to do from executive order. Uh, one of the first things he did was withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership and there was also his uh, travel ban, which that was held up in the uh, courts uh, for most of this year, thanks to activist uh, federal judges, but the Supreme Court uh, has upheld it. He is withdrawn from the uh, Paris Climate Accord and he's uh, reversed Obama-era uh, environmental uh, regulations, which were crippling the, the US economy. Uh, but of course, uh, getting things through Congress, that has proven uh, a lot more difficult, uh, obviously. Even, and they, this is despite the fact that the Republicans have a majority in both houses. Uh, Obamacare is still uh, in place, and he only really had his first legislative uh, victory with the passing of the uh, income and company tax cuts, which was just happened this month. Well, one has to understand how monumental these tax cuts are. When John uh, Fitzgerald Kennedy cut taxes, uh, he, uh, between 1961 and 1968, thereafter his presidency, and including his pre presidency, there was, they saw, I, I believe, um, uh, this is a bit rusty. According to the Heritage Foundation, about 60% uh, increased revenue into the federal government. When uh, Ronald Reagan uh, cut taxes um, during his tenure between 1980 and 1988, income to the federal government increased by 99.4%. Now, this is not only good for consumers, it's not only good uh, for consumers getting cheaper goods, for companies being able to employ more workers, but for governments to be able to get more revenue to build new roads, new bridges, and to fund armies uh, against the threat of communist China, which is omnipresent at this stage in the South China Sea, uh, there will be a quasi-arms race uh, going on pretty soon, if not, if it is not happening already. Uh, and this, this will be a way to reinvigorate Western uh, society, to reinvigorate America, and to breathe some life into the economy of, of an economy that, frankly, that George W. Bush 
and uh, Barack Hussein Obama, frankly, did their best to kill, to murder, uh, to mutilate. Um, the US economy was on struggle street until Donald Trump uh, breathed a bit of consumer confidence into the economy. Now, uh, surely we can't overplay the role of one man, but certainly here, cutting company tax rate, uh, allowing the Keystone Pipeline uh, to come into place, uh, seeing the Dow Dr Jones go over 20,000 points, um, seeing you know billions of dollars coming back into the US economy, seeing share prices rise all over the place, uh, hearing announcements of increases in remuneration uh, to everyday working Americans. Um, Elizabeth Warren might call that corporate propaganda, but I call that real jobs, real growth and real prosperity. And I think it's terrific the job that Donald Trump's done here. Obviously, he's had a few failures with Obamacare, namely, uh, but I would love to see that scrapped and I would love to see a world-leading privatised uh, medical health care system be implemented that can be a world leader. I'd also love to see the wall being built and we can only hope and pray that both these things will occur in Donald Trump's tenure and I think he's doing a terrific job so far. Uh, and of course, uh, the political establishment, they haven't made it easy for him. And uh, probably the, the biggest opponent of his agenda has been what what has been known as the, the deep state, because obviously Trump came into office wanting to have better relations with uh, Russia. And of course, that morphed into the uh, Trump-Russia collusion uh, conspiracy. We saw a number of intelligence leaks. And now that there's a, a special counsel, Robert Mueller, who's now investigating uh, possible collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. And of course, all of this, uh, you know, these allegations, there's still no smoking gun. There's still nothing to prove that uh, they, they work together. Uh, yes, there, there is about as much evidence as the world is flat as there is to Donald Trump colluding with the Russians. Um, of course, Donald Trump is one of the most successful businessmen uh, in the world. Donald Trump is perhaps one of the most successful politicians in the world. Donald Trump, of course, has done business with many people around the world and therefore he obviously has some kind of uh, business kind of uh, connections with Russia, but one must not confuse uh, mutually beneficial business as some kind of entanglement or some kind of collusion. That's basically all that's occurred. There's been no smoking gun. Uh, the only thing that I've seen, and this was Donald Trump Jr. Uh, talking to WikiLeaks on Twitter on his DM messages. And, and um, he basically told WikiLeaks uh, that he wasn't interested. Um, so th there hasn't really been anything. Now, th there has been uh, that fellow, his campaign manager, Paul Manafort. And, and there has been Michael Flynn uh, talking to the Russians through back channels without the proper uh, permission or, or kind of um, verification from the appropriate officials. But it's a perfectly normal thing if you're expecting to get office to try and establish some diplomatic relations prior to being elected. Now, Clinton was doing that. She was establishing diplomatic our relations through back channels with many players around the world, but 
no one really cares because she's lost. And and Trump saying, I want better relations with Russia. I want to fight ISIS with Russia. You know, since Russia has been involved in the Middle East, um, Assad um, has has gotten control over his own country. Uh, Islamic State has uh, been rescinded to, you know, a bucket of ash. And Russia has done a very good job in that geopolitical sphere. Obviously, they have interests with Syria, they have interests with Iran, um, but but we're also both friends with Israel, Australia, Russia, and America, and uh, we can all work together uh, to preserve some kind of uh, peace and democracy in the Middle East. Uh, we can all work to to fight and kill Islamic terrorism and I, a terrorist, and I think that this is this is very much visionary from Donald Trump. It's not a sign of collusion whatsoever. And this is just another lie and distortion of the mainstream media to try and muddy the waters, to try and ruin progress, uh, to basically uh, build up the deep state and keep the foundations firm for deep state control you know, of the United States. They don't want power with the people. They want power with faceless bureaucrats. Uh, and that's simply what we're seeing from the mainstream media right here, right now. Yes, the, the mainstream media has been the, the biggest pusher of the Trump-Russia collusion and conspiracy. And let's not forget all the other uh, fake news that they've pushed. Or, or no, well, not just fake news, but also non-news. Like, saying that, oh, you know, Trump's tweets, like, oh, they're the worst thing a you know, pre uh, president's ever done. I, you know, they, they seem to believe that, you know, saying mean things about, you know, journalists is the equivalent of committing war crimes. And, of course, recently we've seen them, you know, critique the way, you know, Trump drinks water. I mean, it's just pathetic. Well, Eisenhower was the first to utilise the radio as a means of communication. Kennedy was the first to utilise the means of television as a communication. Now, imagine if... The media was having a go at Kennedy in the 60s for using television. It's uh, it's improper. Uh, it's it's a realm of actors, of of kind of destitute drug addicts. You know, a president shouldn't be on the television. That's one way of looking at it. Or two is they just are basically all Clinton cronies. Um, that's another way of looking at it. On the on what you were saying there, Tim, about how Trump was drinking water. Personally, I think that Trump is a very eloquent drinker of water. Um, you can buy Trump water if you if you really want to try some of the finest water that's ever been on Mother Earth, uh, if you want to try some good water. If you want something heavier, you can buy Trump vodka. You know, I'd also encourage that as well. Um, but th that's just more media bullshit. Another thing is Trump and Shin uh, Shinzo Abe, when they were feeding the fish, they were feeding fish uh, together. It was, it was very cute. Um, they, they were throwing little bits of fish, and then TYT, the Young Turks, those communist uh, assholes, basically said that Trump poured it all in. He had no respect for Japanese custom. If you look at the side-by-side -side video footage, both of them pour that little bit, last little bit of fish food both together at the end. Uh, if you really want to be pedantic, I, I, I can uh, uh, beat you down... Uh, way down low and beat you with the experience. But personally, I would prefer uh, to talk about facts and things that really matter rather than fish food and bottled water. The these are things that I find to be secondary issues. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Tim. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, I don't necessarily see 
that you know drinking water is a sign of you know whether you're pres presidential or not we have to remember that trump was elected because he was unconventional when it came to uh presidential uh style uh, but also another side issue that's uh been happening in the united states has been obviously uh you know antifa is still you know running rampant you know shutting down uh, uh university talks we saw you know obviously what happened at berkeley with milo yiannopoulos and coulter and uh ben shapiro and oh, oh, we also saw the you know alt-right become you know quite uh you know extreme as well there was of course the infamous rally at uh, at charlottesville and it, it really showed that what well, in my opinion you know the alt-right the reason why they've you know become you know so so radical is because groups such as antifa have basically been terrorizing uh the whole country and so the alt-right has been a reaction to that the alt-right basically plays uh, white identity politics as a, they're reactionaries to the to Antifa, but if you if you listen to economics on both sides, they're completely retarded. But I can understand why the alt right has come to be is because of the prevalence of kind of left wing, basically uh, hogwash and communism being thrown into the academic system as kind of worthy academic study. Marxism has been taken as a main line for worthy academic study in a lot of Western institutions. Moreover, multiculturalism has been accepted as a doctrine or some kind of religion by many politicians. You should see what that does to some working class, sub, especially in Melbourne. I, I've, been, I've walked into Dandenong before and I've seen the do doctrine of multiculturalism at its best. I've, um, I've tried to ask for directions. I've knocked on people's doors, kind of canvassing for business, and uh, about, what, about two in ten people could speak to me. And, and, and we saw that with Mark Latham's Outsiders on the street as well. You know, no one can speak English, no one can converse with each other. Now, this causes a lot of friction in communities. If neighbours can't talk to each other, misunderstanding and mistrust kind of fosters. Uh, and and that, that's what's happening here. So we can understand that there's kind of neo-Marxism in the education system, there's failed multiculturalism, and then there's an economy that has left a lot of people behind, especially in that manufacturing realm, uh, because there hasn't been that education system to say that we aren't in a manufacturing economy anymore, we are in an information-based economy. Um, a lot of people being left behind. Uh, in America, in the US, this is occurring all over the Western world. Um, Certainly, the, I can understand why the alt-right operates and why they're here, but certainly um, I, I don't like what they're doing. In Australia, the political establishment is still firmly in control. Uh, obviously, both major parties still adhere to the climate change religion, although we have seen some improvement in the coalition's approach to uh, energy policy, basically because electricity has become so unaffordable and unreliable 
for many Australians. They've uh, ditched the uh, proposed clean energy target and now we're getting a national energy guarantee which will uh, have the emphasis on reliable power. However, we uh, as a nation are still committed uh, to uh, the Paris Climate Accord and other uh, international emissions targets. So it's been an improvement, but it's still our uh, our, our leaders, they, they, they still won't deviate from the approved line on climate change. So this global warming religion is interesting, obviously, but I, I've just been reading uh, quite an interesting report. Um, this one here. I don't know if people on the camera can see that. This here um, shows a great deal of uh, volcanic activity actually under the North Pole. And a lot of people haven't been haven't been talking about this. Um, I'll I'll just read a passage of this report. This is talking about the the earthquakes, the volcanic uh, I guess earthquakes that have happened uh, underneath uh, the North Pole. Not small rumblings either, but rather magnitude six to two earthquakes in in succession. It also seems that vulcanization continued until two thousand eight, and some data exists that indicate the vulcanization continued until 2011 before it actually um, subsided. Um, so basically this report that I'm reading here uh, basically talks about a large degree of volcanic activity under the North Pole um, that has increased CO2 levels, uh, that has increased sea levels uh, a little bit and uh, this this um, this is Mother Nature. I, Man-made CO2, Tim Wilms driving his car to work, isn't causing these volcanoes to erupt. Unless Al Gore can convince me with the inconvenient lie part three, um, I'm not seeing this occur. So volcanic activity under the North Pole that hasn't been reported at all in the mainstream media. Uh, for two, uh, Al Gore's predictions on Kilimanjaro, complete rubbish. Al Gore's predictions that Florida would be underwater, complete rubbish. Um, you know, there, there is not an apocalypse on the horizon. Uh, coal power stations are being built around the world. Germany is building them. Japan is building them. China is building them. The new, the best and the brightest technology. And guess what they're using? Australian coal. The nuclear stations that France has, the nuclear stations that Japan had, the nuclear stations that China has, the nuclear stations that India has, guess what they're using? Australian uranium. Simply a bunch of laws enacted in the Rudd era have caused pensioners to go cold. The, the laws are ridiculous simply because you know they say that we can't use our own energy. In Australia, but it's fine for them to ship it over to China uh, and use it in dirty coal um, generators there. But it's not fine, you know, for us to use it uh, with some of the most modern clean coal power generators in the world. So we simply we have lies uh, that are perpetrated by people like Al Gore. We have truths that aren't being told, like volcanic activity uh, under the under the North Pole. Um, and and we, we aren't also being told that 
ice sheet uh, density and um, whatever is actually is sorry uh, is growing in the south, but is rescinding in the north. We aren't told that the Roman period uh, prior to Henry Ford and his dirty manufacturing uh, and his production lines and 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 the car. We aren't told that the Roman period was actually a lot warmer than it is uh, than it is now. We aren't told that we've just recovered from a mini ice age and that the River Thames last froze over in 1812. We aren't told all of these things because they don't fit neatly into the narrative of the anti-business communists uh, in the UN and in the EU um, who basically wants to give more control to government, wants to give more power to government, wants to take uh, a lot of power away from the people and, and this global warming uh, bonanza is being used as a kind of a proxy to take power from people and basically make them into serfs or or into good citizens that the government can basically uh, take money from and it, it, it's very sad. Of course, Australia was not immune from the threat of Islamic terror. We saw the uh, Brighton terror siege where uh, one, uh, one person was uh, shot and, and killed. And we also saw a number of uh, terror plots uh, foiled. Um, but from our uh, federal government, we still saw that, uh, you know, that they, st they still want immigration policy to be uh, business and, as usual and of course they've played down the link between Islam and terrorism. Let's not forget the ASIO uh, chief telling Pauline Hanson that there was zero evidence of our refugee program being linked to terrorism. This was actually a few days before the uh, Brighton siege which was committed by a Somali uh, refugee uh, and of course there was you know George Brandis crying over uh, Pauline Hanson wearing a burqa in uh, Parliament. So we haven't seen uh, much willingness to really uh, tackle the issue of Islam from our from our government and the uh, I was going to say the the opposition and the Greens, but you know we don't expect much from them. Uh, well, Pauline, she's an interesting lady. Um, George Brandis is a phony, um, and Islamic terrorism is real. Uh, there is a connection between a large degree of uh, unvetted, unfiltered mass immigration and an increase in crime. You know, that is simply the truth. Australia has a very generous uh, refugee program, but refugees um, uh, should be... Uh, well, they should be processed properly, maybe with outside the bounds of Australia, until they're proven to be both mentally and physically well um, before they're accepted uh, as fully fledged citizens. And maybe it is our job uh, when they're in those refugee camps to help them get well, to help them tick the boxes. But certainly, I don't think that it is you know, the job of the Australian government or the duty of the Australian people to put up with terrorists and terrorism. Uh, but certainly, obviously, that is not to say that as a left would probably try and uh, dogmatically say that we're saying that all refugees are terrorists and we're all racist, we're all redneck conservatives. No, we're basically just saying that 
there has to be a, a degree of due diligence. There has to be maybe uh, a greater degree of processing before all refugees are accepted into Australia, and and, and maybe putting them into into vast, um, you know, not into vast areas, but into concentrated areas is actually increasing more problems. Maybe to actually bring refugees up to speed. Uh, we should have a decentralised approach to immigration. Maybe we shouldn't put all uh, our immigrants into Western, into Western uh, Melbourne or to Western Sydney, but maybe we should put some into rural country Victoria. Maybe we should put some into the inner cities. Maybe even, God forbid, maybe we might even annoy some of the people in the eastern suburbs and put some refugees there. Yes, the regressive left, they've been quite busy uh, this year uh, attacking our uh, culture and history and freedoms. Uh, let us uh, remember that there were three inner Melbourne councils who decided to uh, cancel their Australia Day uh, festivities. The, the Greens, their official policy is to change the date of Australia Day. There are many Labour MPs who are speaking out about a uh, trying to change the day. And of course, we saw the the ABC's uh, youth radio station Triple J move its hottest 100 uh, from Australia Day and there were even attacks uh, on our colonial statues that they should be uh, torn down and of course all this is uh, you know supposedly to um, you know placate indigenous uh, sensitivities but it's it, it, as we've seen it it's more about uh, you know left left-wing people you know virtue signaling um, you know indigenous people who live out in uh, you know, rural and remote Australia, you know, they're more concerned about, you know, their, their own welfare rather than, you know, these symbolic things such as, you know, changing Australia Day. That's an interesting point you raise there. For some of the people who might not uh, know about Jacinta Price or... And we had um, her on this show. You know, you had her. So would you, would you care to enlighten maybe on what real Indigenous people like Jacinta Price actually care about rather than kind of left-wing communist uh, activists? Well, she, uh, well, I'll tell, her, tell you what she's concerned about. She's more concerned about, you know, the domestic violence that goes on in Indigenous communities, uh, uh, sexual abuse, you know, the, uh, and also, you know, the um, poor health and educational outcomes. You know, those are the real, you know, Indigenous issues, like changing Australia Day and, for that matter, you know, constitutional recognition or, um, you know, an Indigenous voice to Parliament, that's not going to magically fix things, as the, you know, apology to the stolen generation didn't magically fix things. So we'd probably both agree that changing Australia Day won't fix the issues that we have. But what what do you think that would increase... Personally, I think investment in jobs and growth and investment in good education would, and housing would probably be the best um, uh, thing that I see is fixing this. What, what do you think would be the real fix? I don't think it's changing Australia, Dad, Tim. Yeah, it, it's, it's exactly that, you know, practical, you know, solutions and also, you know, uh, disregarding, you know, political correctness because the left, they don't like to admit that there's, you know, these problems in Indigenous communities because, you know, they, they like to have the, you know, rose-coloured glasses that, you know, Indigenous uh, communities, you know, they're all, you know, uh, you know lovely and, you know, they're, they're all living a, you know, greater uh, existence. So it's actually, it's actually, you know, quite a straightforward, you know, 
admitting that there, you know, there is a problem in these areas and actually have, you know, implementing, you know, policies such as, you know, the cashless uh, welfare card, you know, making sure that there's actual property rights there. So to give, you know, local Indigenous people an incentive to, you know, manage their, their own affairs and look after their own property, you know, basically, you know, uh, uh, applying the, you know, the law that applies applies to the rest of the country into into those remote communities and just you know looking at you know this community just like any other without you know this you know oh we've we can't look like we're being you know racist or discriminatory and of course the debate that consumed or the second half of 2017 in Australia was that of same-sex marriage we had the marriage law postal survey which uh, returned a 61.6 percent uh, yes vote uh, uh, out of a close to 80 percent turnout so we had uh, same-sex marriage uh, legalized uh, at the end of this year uh, sa uh, sadly though there you know were no uh, religious protections uh, enshrined in it though there is a uh, review into religious freedoms which we hope uh, something uh, comes of that. Now, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, conservatives were quite um, uh, disheartened, you know, by the, you know, overwhelming uh, yes uh, response. But to me, it was, you know, I've always, you know, believed that, you know, Australians were, were going to vote yes, yes on this. And I, I don't think that uh, this vote was a uh, vote of approval for the rest of the left's agenda. I think people just, you know, voted on uh, the, uh, this issue. And certainly, as as we've discussed previously, you know, the Australian people, you know, are not behind, you know, changing Australia Day or, um, you know, having, you know, leftist thugs, you know, ru run the streets. So um, I, I really don't think that this was, you know, a big, you know, setback for the, you know, right in Australia. Well, I think it's a setback. There's many setbacks. I think it's a cultural setback, honestly. I think uh, what marriage is, uh, is a man and a woman creating a child, having a family. And I think that changing that isn't a good thing. Uh, the other thing in the cultural decay is, especially in Victoria where we live, euthanasia was also legalised. So. We, and then and then we've got abortion till birth. So we, we kill, we're killing the unborn, we're killing our youth, and we, we're basically shitting on uh, family and the family unit. That's what I think we're doing here. That might be a bit controversial to you. That's my opinion on the matter. I think it was always going to go this way, but that 20% that abstained, I think that was probably that 20% uh, who didn't really... Uh, didn't really want to vote because they were they didn't a either care or b they they uh, didn't cast their vote because they may have been a yes voter uh, who saw the thuggishness and the violence and then they were um, you know they were they saw that the, the, the yes side there's there's a dark underbelly to it it is a rainbow tra a Trojan horse. Uh, that that was seen. So that twenty percent who abstained, I think, yeah, that could have split either way. Just just from what I've heard and what I've spoken, who I've spoken to. So that's that's not exactly good. Good, but that's what Howard would call field evidence, and I think a lot of people were turned off from voting from the thuggishness and the violence. 
you could see this as a great social step forward. Personally, I don't really. Um, homosexuality hasn't been illegal in Australia since the early 90s. I don't think it should be illegal. But I, I don't think that uh, the marriage should be recognised if it is with outside the, the bounds of man and woman. And personally, I think that's very regressive um, to go down this way. And I think I don't agree with it at all. And I think it signifies the diminishment of Christianity uh, in the West. And and, it, and it, I think it will bring apart a lot of social decay. And, and personally, uh, you know, I don't really know... I think that a, a child deserves a mother and a father as well, and that, that's another thing. You're saying that a kid doesn't deserve a mother and a father. Um, you know, I find this disgusting. I completely disagree with it, but it is uh, not a setback for the right because a lot of the right now isn't that old school Christian right of the 90s. It's the it's the how would you say the civic nationalist uh, who understands economics, and they don't really care what people do with themselves. So. In, in the scheme of things, it's not really a setback for the right. But personally, you know, it doesn't really sit well with me. And I don't think it sits well with that 38% of Australia as well. In Australian politics, it looks like we're heading towards uh, Prime Minister Bill Shorten because uh, Malcolm Turnbull has now lost uh, 26 uh, news polls in a row, or uh, as we recall, to claim the Prime Ministership from Tony Abbott. He's at the benchmark of 30 news poll losses in a row, so he's nearly fulfilled his own failure uh, benchmark. And we had two state elections this year. In Western Australia, uh, the uh, Labor opposition were elected uh, in a landslide. And of course, in Queensland, uh, and Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk, her Labor government was uh, narrowly uh, re-elected, mainly thanks to uh, One Nation preferences and a pretty uh, mediocre LNP opposition. So in terms of uh, electoral fortunes uh, for the right and conservatives, it it wasn't uh, a good year, and it looks like we're heading for a in the next year or so, because uh, a, a federal election it could be next year sometime. Uh, you know, wall-to-wall Labor governments around the nation. Certainly, with uh, AT or uh, Anthony Abbott, uh, well, no, no, TA be Anthony Abbott, Tony, or be AT if you want to call him Anthony Abbott. That's his real name, but. He, he lost 30 news polls, 30. Um, Turnbull has lost 26. Inevitably, Turnbull will lose 30 news polls and he will still be prime minister and he will be made to look a fool. It will be beautiful. Uh, it's, it's certainly uh, because it, it amazes uh, me that, you know, obviously we're seeing, you know, the left's... Um, you know, utopian vision fall apart with, uh, you know, obviously we've talked about it, you know, the unreliable and expensive power and how the left, you know, they want to attack our, you know, national institutions, you know, Australia Day, uh, colonial statues, um, and, you know, constantly calling, you know, the Australian people, you know, racist, sexist, whatever, yet the polling suggests that they, they're going to elect, you know, and Bill Shorten, he, you know, even though he says he's from the right of the Labour Party, he, you know, basically wants to implement a radical far 
left, you know, economic agenda. Uh, let's let's not forget, you know, his key platform is, you know, fighting uh, inequality, and you know, he wants to, you know, really, um, you know, uh, beat down corporate Australia, and of course, uh, wants to implement the the trade union movement's wish list. So it's. Australia is not in for, you know, um, what we've had in the past, uh, economically, you know, responsible Labor government. The days of Keating are over. Uh, the day, uh, well, you know, we didn't really have an economically responsible Labor government under Gillard, did we? We didn't really have a, an economically responsible Labor government under Rudd, did we? No. So I think that Labor sensibility on, on, the, on the topic of economics long, long since has died, probably about 20 years ago when Keating fell. Now, um, you, look at, you look at this in the long term, he is saying all of this rubbish to basically galvanise his base. I, I highly doubt that he would actually implement any of this if he governed, but it's this kind of campaign rhetoric... Um, that, that, that we're seeing uh, here, and I think if we were to believe word for word what he's saying would be some kind of naivete, but I think we should understand that maybe he's just saying a lot of this shit to uh, get some funding from trade unions uh, for the next election campaign. <laughs> it's still not uh, not very good in my opinion, um, but uh, thank you, Jacob, uh, today for uh, reviewing the year with me, and let's hope it's a, a better year in uh, 2018 for Australia and the rest of the world. Well, personally, I think it was it was it was a better year. The 2016 and 17 have been good years for the right. We've seen Trump. We've seen Brexit. Um, and we've seen some we've seen some positivity around the globe. You know, uh, glimpses of positivity. You know, in a well of 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 left wing garbage, basically. So uh, I'm very happy to be on the show. Very happy to do the review. Very happy to speak to you. And I'm very grateful um, for for my opportunity here at the Unshackled this year. Thanks for taking me on, Tim. And I wish you all, everyone, uh, a happy new year. And at The Unshackled, we certainly hope to ramp up our news coverage and continue our quest to uh, give a voice to the uh, voiceless and, of course, you know, wake more people up to what's really going on uh, in the world. And, yeah, I look forward to speaking with you again, Jacob, in 2018. Okay. Take care, Tim. All right, everybody, that's the show for today. We didn't discuss New Zealand politics in our show. That is because we are doing a special New Zealand review show with our affiliate Right Minds New Zealand early next week, so stay tuned for that. Also, don't forget to vote in the 2017 Unshackler Awards. There are 10 awards with 10 nominees each, with the winners determined by a poll of our followers and uh, the winners announced on Australia Day. So far, both the Regressive of the Year and Patriot of the Year categories have been posted. We'll be posting more in the coming days, so uh, stay tuned for those as well. But in the meantime, make sure you get voting. Hope you enjoy your New Year's celebrations, and we'll see you in 2018. Thanks for tuning in to The Unshackled Waves. Please visit theunshackledwaves.net for all the ways to subscribe and follow the show. Don't forget to pick up your free ebook at theunshackledbattlefield.net and keep checking out theunshackled.net 
for all the latest news and commentary.